Well, has anyone here heard of the band? It's a Canadian band known as the Arrogant Worms. Kind of an interesting band name, don't you think? Arrogant Worms. They're known for a, being a comedy band, parodies, wit, satire, different funny songs they do. One of my favorites goes like this. I'm not going to sing it for you. I'll read the lyrics. It says, Scott, speaking of uh, Scott the Antarctic Explorer, became famous for freezing to death in Antarctica. Columbus made history thinking some island was India. General Custer's a national hero for not knowing when to run. All of these men are famous, and they're also very dumb. (laughs) And then the chorus goes, history is made by stupid people. Clever people wouldn't even try. So if you want a place in the history books, then do something dumb before you die. (laughs) Continues, verse 2. Nobility are famous for no reason. Marie Antoinette enjoyed her cake. She caused a revolution when she would not share, and her husband lost his head for that mistake. The Hindenburg was a giant zeppelin. Its makers made a minor oversight. Before they filled it up with explosive gas, they should have fixed the no-smoking light. (laughs) Then the chorus goes again. History is made by stupid people. And the bridge goes, tally-ho, tally-ho, our king and country's honor we will save. Tally-ho, tally-ho, we're marching into history in the grave. So if your son and daughter seem too lazy... Sitting there watching bad TV, just remember you should be quite grateful. At least they're not making history. (laughs) I don't know about you, but growing up through school, history was one of my favorite subjects. And some people love it, some people hate it, they can't stand it. Um, I think it's either a love or hate. You don't go in between on the history. But whatever it was about the history, learning about how our world has come to be the way it is today, it fascinated me. Whether it was made by stupid people or pretty smart people, it was just fascinating. Did you ever wonder why they make us study history growing up? Why do they do that? We learn, some people say we learn from the successes or failures of the past. You might hear the common saying, if we don't learn from history, we're what? Doomed to repeat it. Uh, I also think we learn a lot about ourselves through history, ourselves about people. Uh, It connects to so many other studies, to politics and science, sociology, psychology, philosophy, religiosity, technology. All of these connect to history in one way or another. So I believe history, it is something that's pretty important that we should learn to study as we grow up. But I also believe that God wants us to be students of history. That God wants us to know about history. I mean, much of the Bible itself is history. It's God's history written in a book. God wants us to remember history, to learn from history. The word remember actually appears well over 200 times in the Bible. To remember where you've come from. Remember your past. Remember your ancestors, remember the days long ago. But I think there's another reason that God wants us to study history. And that is because I believe that God reveals himself through history. You know that? That God reveals himself through history. We're, we're going through a series right now on how God has revealed himself to man in many different ways. 
And even though he's the transcendent, sovereign God of the universe, that he wants us, lowly humans, to know him. And so he's revealed himself. It's the only way we could know him, is if he revealed himself to us. Last week we uh, looked at our consciences and how God has revealed himself as a just judge of our sins through our conscience. We know what naturally what's right and what's wrong. This week we're going to look at history and how God has revealed himself through history. And if you enjoy history, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this. You're going to, I'm, I'm sure you'll appreciate it. But if you don't, I just hope that I'm less dull than your history courses that you were in in school. <laughs> so, but looking at God's word really should never be dull. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm chapter 44. In the Old Testament, right near the middle of your Bibles, if you open it up to the middle, you'll probably hit Psalms or right about that. Psalms 44. And before we dive into this psalm, let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for bringing each one of us here this morning to be with your people, to grow, to love you more, to know you more, and to love each other more. We pray now as we come to your word that you would teach us, that we would see things that we haven't seen before. If we've never even seen this in the Bible, we pray that you would open our eyes to it and reveal it to us. We ask this in your name. Amen. So the word psalm, it simply means song. So the book of Psalms, big chunk of the Bible, is a songbook. It was the Hebrew songbook of worship to God. And Psalm 44, a lot of these psalms were written by David. This one actually isn't. It's written by a couple guys named the Sons of Korah. That was their nickname. I guess it's their band name. But uh, we don't know exactly when this psalm was written. But we'll see some clues as we read it. So we'll get to that in a minute. But throughout this psalm, I think we'll learn some very... Neat ways that God has revealed himself in history to us. So without further ado, let's read Psalm chapter 44. We'll read the first few verses. It says, We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. With your hand you drove out the nations and planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples and made our fathers flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. You are my king and my God, who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you we push back our enemies. Through your name we trample our foes. I do not trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God we make our boast all day long. And we will praise your name forever. Selah. Let's stop there. So the first thing I think we learn from these verses in this psalm is this. That God has revealed himself. He's revealed his sovereign power by being active in history. The infinite God has revealed himself to mankind as sovereign and powerful. And he's done this by being active in the history of our world. Throughout the entire first section of this psalm, the acts of the Lord are recounted or remembered. You see that? It says, we have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what you did in, our, in their days, long ago. With your hand you drove out the nations, planted our fathers, crushed the peoples, made our fathers flourish. The Lord did all this. They're recounting it. They basically said, Lord, we have heard all about our history, and it's full of you. 
It's full of you. And what did they know about God through his works in history? Well, they clearly believed that his sovereignty was displayed, that he was in control of history. In verse 3 and 4, it says, It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you love them. You are my God and my, or my king and my God, who decrees victories for Jacob. Other translations say that God commands victory or ordains salvation for his people. So they believe that God was sovereign in history. And they also obviously believe that he was powerful. It's like through you we push back our enemies. Through your name we trample our foes. I do not trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. He, he was a powerful, powerful God. There's a whole crowd of people in history uh, named the Deists. And there actually, there's been a lot of them. There's not as many today. But what the Deists believe is that God exists. So they're not like atheists. They're, they believe God exists, but that God is not active in the world. So that he is transcendent. He can be in control of things if he wanted to, but he doesn't interact with history. He does not reach down, interfere in the ways of man. He doesn't intervene with the world. He leaves it be. I'll just say this. If you believe the Bible is true, you cannot be a deist. It's impossible. Because God, you see, time and time and time again, where God reaches down and acts in our history, intervenes, guides it, Now, it's much easier to see God's role in history in the history he's given us than, say, in our secular textbooks that we have in school. It's easier to see it, obviously. But I believe we can see God working through all of history. When you consider what his purpose is, what his purpose for guiding history is, and you see how he has worked to make certain things towards his end. In Acts 17, we looked at this passage a few weeks ago when Paul was addressing the Greeks on Mars Hill. He said, From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Get what he's saying? He's saying that God has sovereignly guided history in order that we would seek and find him. He's guided history so that we can come to know him. Now, these psalmists here back in 44 are referring to some specific historical happenings. Did you see that? Verse 2, he says, With your hand you drove out the nations, you planted our fathers, you crushed the peoples, made our fathers flourish. When you think of the history of the Hebrew people, what do you think of? Maybe certain people? Abraham, Noah, Moses, David, Samuel, any of them. Or maybe you think of the Exodus, the flood, the kingdom. There's a lot of different things we could think of when we think of the history of the Hebrew people in the Bible. But the psalmist here, they're specifically referring to both the Exodus from Egypt and then the conquest of Canaan. How God helped them conquest Canaan and reclaim the land that was meant to be theirs. Now, who are the heroes of these stories? 
of the Exodus and the conquest. You might think of Moses, maybe Joshua. That's not the story you get here in the psalm, though, is it? Do they ever mention them? Well, they say they or there. <laughs> but who do they focus on? They focus on God. See, that's the story that we get in the Bible again and again and again. We have elevated these heroes of the faith to this legendary status, but really they were just ordinary people that God chose to use in extraordinary ways. And God is the hero of the story. Throughout history, he's the hero of each of the stories. You see what they say. It says, with your hand, you drove out the nations. It wasn't Joshua. You planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples. You made our fathers flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face. You know, in Star Wars, where all the good guys in Star Wars are always hoping the Force would be with them? How it was some supernatural thing that gave them extra power or strength, mystical force, whatever. (laughs) And they kept saying, may the Force be with you, may the Force be with you, may the Force be with you. Because they knew without this Force in this made-up world, they were hopeless. They could not win without the Force behind them. And now, I have to say, if you start building theology around Star Wars, you've got some problems. But I think this idea of a force, a supernatural force, working through people, working behind people, behind the scenes, fighting for them, is very much the way God has worked in history. That he has used people to accomplish his sovereign purposes. It's quite amazing. The psalmist recognized that any power that their people had over the years came from God. That's true for us today, too. That hasn't changed. In the church, any power that we have comes from God. We can't do it on our own. I love one of the songs that we've introduced to you. Uh, we sang it last week called the Desert Song. And the chorus goes, I love it because the chorus goes, I will rejoice, I will rejoice, God is my victory. I don't get victory, God is my victory, and he is here. Or like we sang this morning, victory in us? No. Victory in Jesus. He is the one who provides the victory. We have not and cannot accomplish anything good apart from God and his power. Now there's something I have to address here, though, and I'm sure that it's been bothering a number of you. It bothered me as I thought about this topic. And that is that if God is so sovereignly and powerfully controlling history and revealing himself through it, then why in the world is there so many terrible things in history? Why is that? I mean, we have plagues and earthquakes and tsunamis, wars, genocides, Holocaust, atomic bombs, much more than that. Why is that? If God is sovereignly controlling history and acting through it, why do we have all this? Even what the psalmists are calling good here had to involve lots of war and death, 
driving out the nations, crushing the peoples, putting adversaries to shame. So what's with that? Well, this is a much, much bigger issue than I can fully address today. But I do have to touch on it. I will address it briefly. We know it as the problem of evil in our world. Why, if God is sovereign and loving, why does he not eradicate evil? Why does he allow evil to continue to exist in the world? And it's a deep issue that we have to think through and address. Here's just a few things that I think uh, I've looked up and learned on this. And if this intrigues you, come talk to me. There's some great resources that I can give you to help you work your way through this. But first of all, the existence of evil in our world originated with mankind's sin. It didn't exist before that. God did not create evil. He did create a world with the potential for it. He did not create evil. But he wanted to give us free choice to choose. And we chose evil. And it entered our world. You don't hear of any wars or diseases, tragedies in the Garden of Eden. Do you? That's because the world that God created did not have those. But our fall, our fall from grace to sin, has put our world out of sync. Sin has affected us in so many ways, in many ways that we don't even comprehend. And in the makeup of our world. Secondly, we make the wrong assumption that God is only a God of love and nothing else. Okay? We, sometimes we believe that. We easily believe that God is love and that he is nothing else. But in the Bible, we learn that God is love and he is holy and he is righteous and he is just. And he judges and punishes sin. Some of what we wrongly call evil in the world may be God's holy judgment on sin. Throughout scriptures, we see that God is a God of judgment and a God of mercy, a God of wrath and a God of love. So when we see God, like in this psalm, wiping out some of the wicked nations in Canaan through Israel, it was likely a judgment on their centuries of evil behavior. So you hear some of the things that they did in their culture, and it's Insane. It's detestable what they did. Now, that doesn't excuse our killing them, our carrying out justice against them. But God doesn't need an excuse. God doesn't need an excuse to judge sin and to use people to do it. This is the way he chose to do it. Annihilation is really what we all deserve. If we got what we deserve, that's what we would get to. But he shows us grace. We may struggle with God's judgment, but we must trust his goodness because he cannot do the wrong thing. He can't. Now, some people feel that God in the Old Testament seems very different from the God in the New Testament. That it seems like the New Testament God is all love and happiness and joy and peace. And then you come to the Old Testament and he's judgmental and he carries out these judgments on these people. And what's, what's with that difference? 
But sometimes people forget that some of the strongest judgments come forth in the New Testament. Some of them come straight from Jesus' mouth. People have made this image of Jesus as this peaceful, good teacher and forget. He proclaimed repentance from sins because sin's punishment was death. And most of the talk of hell in the Bible, eternal death, came from Jesus. D.A. Carson has made a very insightful point, and he says that throughout Scripture, we have this continual ramping up, this building up of both wrath and love. That throughout the Bible, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. That from the beginning of the world, we see God's judgment of sin. He kicked them out of the garden. And we see his love and giving them grace in different areas. And then that just keeps building and building and building till the very end of time when we will see the fullest display of both his judgment on sin and his mercy on people. It's not different. It's the same God. Josh McDowell says this. This quote will be on the screen. It says, we find judgment as well as love scattered very pervasively throughout the New Testament and love and mercy as well as judgment throughout the Old Testament. God is consistent and unchanging, but different situations call for different emphases. Therefore, when the two Testaments are read the way they were intended, they reveal the same holy God who is rich in mercy, but who will not let sin go unpunished. Third thing to consider here. And that is that God uses events that we may see as evil that may not be evil at all. And that is because we cannot understand the infinitely wise and all-knowing ways of God. We don't understand everything that's going on. We have a very, very finite perspective. And he knows what is best for the world. He knows what is best for us, and he knows what will bring the most glory to himself and the most good to us. There may very well be greater purposes that we cannot see from our vantage point. That's the idea we get in Romans 8.28, where it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. That includes working for our good through events that we may consider evil. We might be wrong. Surprise, surprise. Fourth, when we think about the current evils in this world, we forget that it is God's plan to eradicate evil eventually. The loving God has not rid the world of evil yet, but he will. He will one day. One last thing. And that is that people who argue against God's existence because of the existence of evil... Forget another problem. And see, they struggle to explain where evil comes from, but really they should also equally explain where good comes from. See, our naturalistic perspective, there is no basis for anything good in our world. There isn't. So how do you explain that? Ravi Zacharias, another quote I put up on the screen, it says this, 
Natural disasters, tragedies, and cataclysmic events are ironically called acts of God. Oddly enough, a bumper crop, a beautiful day, a close brush with what should have been death but wasn't, the wonderful joys and pleasures of life are given no such benevolent source. Malevolence is God's doing. Benevolence is evolutionary wisdom. Strange, isn't it? I think that leads us right into what we're going to see next in this passage. And that is that God is God is revealed himself as sovereign, and he's revealed himself as active in history. He's also revealed his gracious providence through every season in history. God has revealed his grace and providence in all seasons throughout history. See, in this psalm where it says God's just judgment has been revealed against wicked nations, but that doesn't seem to be where the psalmists are focusing. They're using it as a contrast, and they're focusing on how God has blessed Israel. It says, with your hand you drove out the nations and planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples and made our fathers flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory, It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. Did you see why God made the Israelites flourish? Because he loved them. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. The reason God made the Israelites flourish was because he loved them. Now just take a cursory reading through the Old Testament, and you'll see that the Israelites were not a very lovable people. God kept showing them grace, and they kept rebelling or complaining and and just doing stupid things again and again and again. And they backslid so often that God chose to keep loving them, to keep being faithful to them. The word for love here could also be translated favor or delight. Basically, undeserved favor. That's our definition for grace. It's grace. Providence simply refers to God's guidance or care. So when we, when the psalmists say that God has taken care of them through the years, that he's planted them, he's made them flourish, he's won victories for them, it's his providence. He's looking out for them. His providence on display. Now some of you might see this and object and say, it sure seems like God is playing favorites here. That he's showing favoritism. Does God show favoritism in looking after the Israelites and not these other nations? I'd say this, on the one hand, it is a type of favoritism. that In that, by no merit of their own, God chose to delight in Israel. They didn't deserve it. And he chose to love them. But, even this grace to them was really not favoritism. Because you know why God chose to bless Israel? Why did God choose to bless Israel? Back when he's giving the blessings to Abraham, and he's saying, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. The nation of Israel is going to come from you. What does he tell Abraham? He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
You get it? God chose to bless Israel in order to bless the rest of the world. That was his way of doing it. That's not favoritism. That's gracious providence. Imagine that you had several kids. Okay, If you're a parent or if you're a kid, you can imagine that you are the kid. Imagine that you have several kids and you wanted to treat them all to ice cream. Okay, So you go to you pick one of your kids and give them a $20 bill and say, go down to the store, buy ice cream for all your siblings. Okay, Now, if your other kids saw you handing that money to, the, to their sibling and not saying anything else to them, what would they think? What are you giving him money for? Why not me? Like, you're showing favorites. Is he your favorite kid or something? But they don't know that kid was sent to bless all the other kids. They will be blessed eventually. It's not favoritism. Yes, you blessed one child with money, and maybe he even might start to eat his ice cream first. (laughs) But the other kids will be blessed through him. The other thing to consider when thinking whether God has shown favorites is to see how God has shown providence to everyone in history. He hasn't just shown providence to a chosen people that he gives salvation to. Providence is wider than that. It's bigger. Providence includes so many things. It includes the blessings of sunshine, of rain, good crops, food on the table, financial blessings, health, medicine, Good governments, the four seasons, our senses of taste and touch and sight and smell. And everyone, whether they're righteous or wicked, has been blessed by God's providence. We often hear the scriptures and the cry, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked prosper? You say you bless the righteous, but they're doing so well in the world. The short answer is, God's choosing to show them grace for the time being. Showing them a form of his providence and his grace. I don't know if you've let your eyes wander down to how this psalm continues, but in verse 9, the mood changes dramatically. The first, verse, the first eight verses were celebrating God's goodness to his people in the past. But then verse 9 brings us into the present, and it's not such a great time for them. Let's read together, starting in verse 8. It says, In God we will make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemies, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing for their sale. You have made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, basically the butt of their jokes. The people shake their heads at us. My disgrace is before me all day long, and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. All this happened to us, though we had not forgotten you or been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path, but you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals, covered us over with deep darkness, 
If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it since he knows the secret of the heart? Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Like I said earlier, we don't know exactly when the psalm was written. We know it wasn't while the Israelites were in exile, because the Israelites would not have been singing about their integrity in exile. This was likely during a season of spiritual revival. They had returned to the Lord, come back to his commands, and yet it seemed like God was rejecting them. It was a national despair. Have you ever felt this way? Maybe things in your life were pretty good spiritually, or you felt like you had a good relationship with God, or something like that. But all sorts of other things in your life were going wrong. Maybe you got really sick, or you lost your job. Maybe your family around you was suffering. Maybe you went through a terrible breakup, and that relationship just broke you. Maybe someone you loved passed away. Maybe it just felt like God has forgotten you or was ignoring your prayers. I think we've all gone through that. But how does God show his grace in times like those? How is his providence shown to us in those times? In reality, his grace never left you. You may even know that. His grace never left you, but it just felt that way. We lose perspective when we focus on our earthly problems instead of on God's grace to us in those times. Let me ask you, when the psalmist here complained that God was sleeping, Verse 23 and 24, it's awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Do you think God was actually sleeping? No. This verse doesn't mean that God actually sleeps. This just means that sometimes it feels that way. It feels like God isn't there anymore. Like he's sleeping. The psalmist was just describing his emotions back to God. That's something we can do in our prayers. But he obviously still believed deep down that God was faithful and loving. In fact, that's how he ends the psalm. I didn't read the last verse. Read verse 26. At the end he says, Rise up and help us. Redeem us because of your unfailing love. He knew God's love was unfailing. It would not fail. He's like, where are you right now, God? That's what we have to do when we're going through some despairing time is to trust. We recall how God has blessed us in the past. That's what he did. Looks to the past. God, you've blessed our forefathers. You've blessed our nation. How has he blessed you in the past? Recall that. And then count your blessings because there's many ways that we just forget to consider how God has blessed us. Even when we're going through difficult, difficult times, he has shown so many forms of grace to us.
family and friends and health and different things. Whether Whatever you're going through, there are other forms of grace. But then he says in First Peter, he tells us to cast our cares on the Lord. For he cares for you. Cast your cares. Whatever you're going through, bring it to the Lord. And then to trust in his grace and his love and his power to deliver you in the future. That's what the psalmist does. He's trusting. Rise up and help us. Redeem us because of your unfailing love. Trust that the Lord will come through. God displays his gracious providence in every season of history, and you are part of that history. Looking back, you'll see his grace displayed, even through the deepest valleys. You'll see his grace displayed in your life. If you still question this gracious providence, I want to point out one further evidence of God's amazing grace that's shown through history. And that's just that God has revealed his faithful redemption by entering history. God reveals his redemption through history and most plainly in the way he enters history through Christ. He has revealed his faithful redemption by entering history. The psalmist prayed here at the end, rise up and help us, redeem us because of your unfailing love. He was asking God to continue what has been God's purpose throughout history. If you want to know what God has been up to in history, what his purpose is, it is redemption. That's his purpose with humans. It's to redeem. Redemption just means to buy us back, to get us back, to free us from sin and death. That's what redemption is, and that's what God's purpose in history with us has been. He says, rise up and help us, redeem us. Redeem us because of your unfailing love. I don't know if any of you enjoyed watching the TV show 24. I really loved that show. I wish it was still on. But I enjoyed watching Jack Bauer, this American counterterrorism agent, in his pursuit of these terrorists all around the world and around America. He was basically fighting them who were plotting attacks against Americans. And some way or another, by the end of the season, he would save the day, become the hero, the national hero. He'd always end up saving the day somehow. But one plot line that kept entering the show over and over again to the point where it was just a joke was that Jack Bauer's family always would get deep into trouble. On the one day of the year that the terrorists are attacking, his family would get into trouble. Whether they ran away from home, or they were kidnapped, or they were held hostage, or attacked by mountain lions, no joke. (laughs) They would just get in deep trouble. And Jack would always have to interrupt his pursuit of these terrorists to go and save his family even if it made his superiors really mad in the process because national security was at stake. And so it was always interesting to see how Jack would balance these things. He would go after the terrorists, but how, he, how far Jack would actually go to rescue his family. And what Jack was doing in the show, really, if you think about it, was like redemption. Because it's like what God does for mankind throughout history. It's his goal to get us back to rescue us, not in a, to get us back, not in a way of revenge, but as in reclamation. 
to get us back, to free us. We fell into sin. We ran away. We were held hostage by it. And he wants to redeem us. To free us. And in history, we see just how far God went to rescue us. He died for us. He sacrificed himself to redeem us, to buy us back, to pay the price. The history of redemption, this broad history that God has done from the day of creation to the day he returns, it continues to this day. God is still redeeming people. But the pinnacle of God's redemption was Jesus Christ. That was the pinnacle of history, when God entered history as a man to win us back. In the book of Acts, in one of the several sermons that the Apostle Paul preached, Paul sums up how God has moved throughout history, and especially in Christ. If you have, Please turn, uh, actually, we won't be back in Psalm 44 for now, so turn to Acts chapter 13 in the New Testament. And Paul sums up how God has moved throughout history. And really, it fills in the blanks. The psalmist didn't know how God was going to redeem them. And Paul says this in Acts chapter 13, verse 16. It says, Paul motioned with his hands and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Sounds like a history book, doesn't it? After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had him carried out, all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now witnesses to our people." We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his generation... He fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. 
but the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. And here's his conclusion. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified justified from everything you cannot be justified from by the law of Moses. See the pinnacle of history? It's Jesus. You see how God has revealed himself in history? He's revealed his sovereign power, revealed his gracious providence, and then he revealed his faithful redemption. And so most clearly through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Like I said earlier, you are part of history being written right now. One day, 2011 will be history. It will be written about. And you have a personal history. Do you see God's redemption offered to you? you see it? He's revealed it. Your personal history or your present may not be that great. But your future can be. Because the forgiveness of sins, like Paul says, our redemption is proclaimed in Jesus. The psalmist in Psalm 44 never saw how God would fully redeem his people. We have. History will reflect his power, his glory, and his redemption. I hope your history will reflect his grace and redemption as well. Let's pray. Lord, as the prophet in Habakkuk says, we have heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. We ask that you would renew them in our day, in our time make them known. In your wrath, remember your mercy. Rise up and help us. Redeem us because of your unfailing love. We trust in you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. verses that we read in Psalm 44, Paul actually quotes it in Romans 8. And he uses it to prove that God's love is unfailing. So one of these verses that the psalmist cried out in despair, Paul uses to prove God's unfailing love. If you're going through one of those seasons of life, life is just difficult. I know there's some of you who are. Take this to heart. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, here is where Psalm 44. For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Then Paul says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.
Have a great week.